in Psalm 96 that, that um, Andrew was talking about during the confession time. It's all about worship. That's a beautiful text. Thank you for sharing that, Andrew. Beautiful text in Psalm 96 about worship. In case you're wondering, by the way, if I may just throw this as an aside, a freebie uh, from the confession, when you think about worship, today we typically think about music. We typically think about, about maybe sitting and listening to a message being preached, and we call that worship. And it is. Don't get me wrong, it is. But Psalm 96 makes it very clear that worship is all life-encompassing, doesn't it? It's everything. It's the entirety of our lives. And um, what, I lo- what I love about the connection between Psalm 96 and Psalm 91 is we're going to discover that Psalm 91 informs us of why Psalm 96 is so beautiful. Psalm 91 informs us of why the worship of God ought to envelop, be enveloping all of our lives and flowing from all aspects of our lives. So I think you're going to find as we work our way through Psalm 91 this morning, and again we'll pick up in Hebrews two weeks from now, when we work our way through Psalm 91, we're kind of going to work through it several times. That doesn't mean that we're going to be here for all, forever, although we may. Uh, yeah, exactly. But we're going to try to work through it s- I- several times, not verse by verse, line by line, but I want us to get a, a flavor for the text in several different perspectives. Psalm 91 should be encouraging, amazingly encouraging to us. It ought to be incredibly convicting to us. And it ought to be very exhortational as well. So hopefully all three of those will come out. It ought to be comforting to us as well, by the way. So all four should come out today. I would hope that the comfort and encouragement are predominant. But in order to really receive the comfort and encouragement that we get from Psalm 91, the exhortation needs to be there as well. So we're going to see it all. But let's read through the text first, the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll start to work our way through it. Starting in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you or be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and will show him my salvation. 
I would present to you the text we looked at today would have what I would describe as a near and far perspective. And it's important that we see both the near and far perspective. We don't have enough time to unpack the entirety of the psalm this morning. Because we could spend probably a good 10, 15, 20 hours in the psalm and not unpack it. So we're not going to do that. My hope is that what we'll do more than anything else is give some interpretive tools for you so that you can maybe feast on it and learn and continue to grow in your understanding of what Psalm 91 is communicating. It is a, an amazingly rich text. But again, I want you to remember there is a near and far perspective in the text. We're going to start out with a near perspective and then move to the far, far perspective afterwards. There are several key passages. There's actually three key passages in the text, three key verses that interpret or unlock the entire text. Oftentimes in the Psalms, that's what you've got to look for, is what are the key verses that unlock the text. And if you don't find the keys, then you won't unlock it. But it's really important that we do that, especially in Hebrew poetry. I would argue that in, in verse 1, it's, very, it's one of the key texts. Verse 8 are one of the key texts. And verse 9 are one of the key texts. Those are the three key texts of this, te- of this whole entire song. Remember, the Psalms are songs that are being sung in worship. And it's very important we remember this. These are songs that people would sing either, in some cases, on the way to or the way from the temple, or in this case, and and many of the other ones, while they were there at the temple worshiping. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to start out with the near near interpretation. We're not going to get to the keys till later because it's important that we see the near first, then we'll go to the keys, and then we'll see the far. I want you to notice as we work our way through the text, and we're going to breeze through, and I'm just going to highlight as we work our way through. When I say near interpretation, what I'm talking about is the near interpretation is for the Jews. By extension, it's for us, but it is by extension. Because anything you read in the Old Testament, generally speaking, is directly linked to Deuteronomy. And that's the Old Testament covenant that the Jews had with their people. So we need to be careful that we... That we that we don't miss that connection as we work our way through. But starting in verse 1, we'll notice that he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now let me just say this real quickly. I'm not, I'm not using it to, as a key at this point. But it's, it's a minor key. Not a real important key, but it is a key. Well, he's telling us that this, whatever he says after this point is for those who what? Dwell in the shelter, Right? They are people who love Yahweh, right? So he says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What a great place to be. And the shadow of the Almighty means that he's leading you. He's there for you. He's close to you. Does that make sense? If, if, if you're not in the shadow, it's not close. If you're, if you're close to somebody, you're in the shadow. That's the perspective. Verse 2, I will say, the psalmist makes it very personal. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 2 is explaining verse 1. In other words, who is it that dwells in the shelter of the Most High? It's someone who says to the Lord, in effect, you are my refuge and my fortress. You're my safety. You're my shelter. You are the one who I depend upon for my existence. That's the idea. The person 
who dwells in the shelter of the Most High is the one who says, you are my refuge, my fortress. And it's summed up in what? End of verse 2. You are my God. My trust rests solely in you. It's an exclusive statement. My trust is not in my belongings. My trust is not in my experience. My trust is not in my skills. My trust is not in my knowledge or wisdom. My, my trust is not in anything, anyone else or anything else. My trust is in you. It's evidence that we're in shadow. And then he goes on from there. This type of person, God will do what with? God will deliver you from the snare of the, follower, of the fowler. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. What he's talking about, obviously a lot of this is metaphors, but the idea of he will deliver you from the snare of the fowlers is referring to someone who catches birds. He's a fowler. He snares them. He sets up snares and captures them for the purpose of either sale or eating, typically. And the idea is the one who is in the shelter of the Most High is going to find that when he gets in danger of being ensnared, what does the Most High do? He either stops him from going in the snare or he opens the snare, right, and sets him free. What a great picture, isn't it? What a great picture. If you can picture a bird, clueless, because the bird doesn't have, to pro have the ability to process those things, does he? And so he flies in the snare, but as he's flying in the snare, what happens? The most high, as it were, catches him. That's, what you, that's who you are. It's a bird. You don't have the ability to identify and protect yourself. He protects. He rescues. He goes on in verse 3, of course, and say, and from the deadly pestilence. And you get the picture of what deadly pestilence is, right? He's talking about disease. Now, again, metaphor. Can't get too literal about it, although in the Old Testament it could have been a very literal thing because of the promises of Deuteronomy. But the pestilence, all you got to do is think a little bit, like just go back in history a little way, 1600s, the Black Plague. Millions died. Get the picture, right? He does what? He delivers you from the black or from the deadly pestilence. Goes, he goes on, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions. And by the way, pinions are the actual feathers on a wing, a bird's wing, that helps them, that is the primary uh, purpose of helping them fly. It's the outer wings, outer feathers, I mean, of the wings. He will cover you with his outer wings. And then he says, and under the entirety of his wings, you'll find refuge, shelter, safety, security. Under the shelter of wings, you get the picture of a, a baby bird. My, mo my mother-in-law this last winter was watching the eagle cam over there in central PA. And when the, when the birds hatched, where'd they go? Right under the wings. That's where they sit, under the wings or under the, under the, right next to the body under the wings. They're completely sheltered. Doesn't matter if it's hailing, snowing hard, pouring rain. The bird just sits there and protects. That's what God says he does for his people that say, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
goes on, he says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. We don't use the term buckler anymore, right? If we think buckle, we think something on the belt, right? That's not what he's talking about. When he says shield, he's talking about something very large. Full body, massive shield. Buckler is a tiny little thing. So he's got a full shield and a buckler. He's got two shields. He, one is not easy to move. The other one's super easy to move. One just sits there. The other one is protecting on the side. So he's, you're fully protected, in other words, in every way. You're under his pinions. You're under his wing. Not only that, but he's got a massive shield and a buckler protecting you. You are protected in every way. There's nothing the enemy can do. What an amazing statement. He goes on in verse 5 with an amazing promise. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. There's nothing to fear if you're under his wing, under the pinions. If you're behind the massive shield and behind the buckler, if he's your refuge in the fortress, a mighty fortress is our God, right? A bulwark never fails. By the way, that's not inspired. That's obviously Martin Luther hymn. But we don't use the word bulwark anymore either, do we? What a bulwark is, by the way, if you ever see any old world buildings built, especially old churches, you'll see the fortress-like walls, and then you'll see these pieces of or massive amounts of stone that come out the side on angles away from the wall. And those are called bulwarks that hold the wall up. The wall by itself, eh, good to have a wall. But the bulwarks keep the walls, the fortress walls, from never failing. You can't overcome the bulwarks if they're built right. You just can't. If you can't overcome the bulwarks, you can't overcome the wall. And that's what Luther tried to capture there. God's fortress is unpenetrable. So verse 5, you will not fear. There's no reason to fear anything. Terror of night, arrow that flies by the day. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks at darkness. Goes back to verse, um, verse 3. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. It's just another way of describing the same things we just talked about. No destruction can touch you. No pestilence can destroy you. He goes even further, verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side. Everyone else may fail. Everyone around you may be defeated. Everyone around you may be struck by arrows, as it were. Everyone, obviously a metaphor of, of attacks against you. Everyone around you may fall to the pestilence. Everyone of you may succumb to ter- everyone around you may come succumb to terror. Even ten thousand at your right hand. But it will not come near. Why? Because it has to come through shelter. It has to come through the fortress. It has to come through the pinions, the wings. 
It has to come through the shield and the buckler. It can't. It can't. It's impossible. So even though it may get everyone else, it won't get verse 1 people. What specifically is he talking about? And that's real important because it's too easy to look at the text and say, wow, prosperity theology, right? I'll never get sick. I'll never get attacked. I'll always be safe. Life will be good. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Verse 2 through 7. Verse 8, remember I said it's one of the key verses of interpretation. We're going to hit the one key verse of interpretation right now before we hit the other two later on. What does he say in verse 8? You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This is the key. What he's talking about in verse 2 through 7 is that wickedness, the effects of wickedness, the effects of evil can never ultimately harm you if you're verse 1. The effects of wickedness, the effects of evil can affect everyone else and will affect everyone else. It will not affect those who are verse 1. Remember what he said in uh, Romans 8.28? Anybody remember it? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? So those who are verse 1, quite to the contrary of being affected by, decimated, because the picture of 2 through 7 is decimation, isn't it? Contrary to be decimated by, they are quite to the contrary discovering that the things that the evil one meant for evil, it turns out for good. That's Genesis chapter 50 with Joseph, isn't it? It's exactly what he's talking about. It doesn't mean that difficulties won't come upon those who are verse 1 type of people. That's not what he's talking about. We know even in the Old Testament, did any difficulties come upon David? He was a man for God's own heart. Difficulties came upon him, didn't he? What about the prophets? Did difficulties come upon the prophets? What did Stephen say in Acts chapter 7? Which one of the prophets did you not kill? Right? Did difficulties come upon Elijah? Well, of course they did. It's hard. Life was hard for the faithful one. Wasn't it? It absolutely was. He's not talking about difficulties. He's talking about evil ultimately winning. And even in the intermediate winning. Not just ultimately, but even in the intermediate. Evil never wins in the life of those who are in verse 1. Ever. Because God is always first cause. And first cause is Romans 8, good. How's it good? Well, according to Romans 8, it does what? So the difficulties that come into our lives serve the purpose of doing what? Verse 29. What does it say? It transforms us into the image of Christ. That's what he says. So we become, contrary to what the evil one wants to have happen, destroy us, right? Quite to the contrary, 
we become more and more and more by those things and because of those things being transformed into the image of Christ. More and more reflecting, more clearly reflecting Jesus Christ. That's what the difficulties are for. That's exactly what. And 1 Peter says the same thing. So does 2 Peter. It's the same thing. Verse 9. That second or the third interpretive key verse. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, what happens? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Again, that doesn't mean absolutely nothing bad can happen. It means that what the evil one means for evil, God means for good. That's exactly what happens. Verse 11 and 12 are classic verses that we'll come back to a little later, but you'll recognize them. You should recognize them right away. Where else have you seen 11 and 12? Let me read them to you. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What? The temptation of Christ. Absolutely. Satan quotes these passages, these verses when he speaks to Christ. We're going to revisit that in just a little bit. But I want you to notice in the near understanding he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, the, the idea of, in this text, from a near interpretation, the angels will guard you from who? The evil one, right? And from evil. And on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And the idea of striking your foot against a stone, by the way, is not so you get a bruised toe. If you strike your foot against a stone, what does that mean? You trip and fall. And that's a spiritual perspective, right? You trip and fall. The idea is that evil, the stone representing evil, you trip over evil and you fall. The angel will protect you. The angel will protect you from, from evil, from going headlong, get the picture, right? From falling headlong into evil, you'll be protected. You, you recognize that in this near understanding that God's active? Both he himself and his angels are active. Do you get that? There's no passivity from God's perspective, is there? Verse 13, I know we're flying quick. It's okay, we're going to go back again. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. He's talking about the same idea. In this case, the adder and the lion is not, the lion here is not representing Aslan, <laughs> just so you're aware, from Chronicles of Narnia. The lion and the adder here is not good. Lion and adder is bad. Okay? They're evil. You will quite to the contrary of being gobbled up by the lion and being bitten by an adder, which is a snake. And, of course, you get bit by an adder. What happens? You die, and it's an agonizing death. And I would imagine being chewed on by a lion is an agonizing death as well. Rather than being eaten and bitten by a lion and an adder, he, notice he doesn't say you will find a way of escape from it. It says what? You will what? Tread on or trample on. Does that sound like victory? 
That sound like complete victory? Trampling sounds like victory. It sounds like a victory dance to me. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Listen to the promise, the near promise. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the verse 1 person. He's talking about the verse 8 person. If you're a verse 1 and verse 8 person, what does he say? What an amazing promise in 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Always. Guaranteed. We should be so encouraged. And so comforted. I will protect him because this verse 1 and verse 8 person knows my name. And I could never go against someone who knows my name, God's saying. I could never do that. I could never abandon that person. What a promise, verse 15, when he calls. I'll answer. I'll answer. I'll be with him no matter what trouble comes, which, by the way, shows that trouble will be there, doesn't it? It's not a troubleless life. Trouble will be there, but I will come. I'll be with him in trouble. And I'll rescue him and honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him, and I will open up the window so that he sees the beauty of my salvation. What an amazingly encouraging verse. If you're a verse 1 and verse 8 person, or passage, if you're a verse 1, verse 8 kind of guy, what an, or a girl, what an amazingly encouraging passage. This is the picture God gives you of being in, in Him. Of being under His wings. Of Him being your shelter and your refuge. That ought to bring us to Psalm 96. Shouldn't it? Now, for a little bit of the exhortation, perhaps, there's a problem. See, we, we have not yet read the passage rightly. We've read the passage the way it typically is read, but we've not read the passage rightly. We haven't. In order to read the passage rightly, we've got to ask ourselves a really important question. And the real important question is this. Simply summed up, are you a verse 1 and 8 person? That's the real question. Let's read verse 1 and 8 again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2 as well. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, 
my God in whom I trust. Trust. Verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see. I'm sorry, not 8. Sorry. Verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Lord or the Most High who is my refuge. Those, again, are the keys to interpret the passage. The primary keys. Verse 1 and 9 are the primaries. Verse 8 is secondary. Verse 1 and 9 demands that the reader, or in the Hebrew case, the singer of this song, asks themselves a very, very important question. Is verse 1 and verse 9 really me? Is it really me? Am I someone who dwells in the shelter of the Most High? And the picture is one who is there and remains there. What's that mean? Am I someone who abides in the shelter of the Almighty? It's my home. It's my only place to be. Am I one who says to the Lord, you, in effect, are my only refuge, and you, in effect, are my only fortress? Am I one who says, my God, and only my God do I trust? Verse 9. Have I made the Lord my only dwelling place? Is the Lord my only refuge? And I don't know about you, but when I read that, the, the rest of this text, in light of that, it changes everything. Because suddenly I find myself in a horrific situation. I don't find myself in a beautiful place. I find myself quite to the contrary. I find myself in verse 7. I'm one of the thousands. I'm one of the 10,000. Now maybe you're different from me. That's where I find myself in this text. I find myself in one of the, one of the thousands and one of the 10,000s. I don't find myself in the one, the one who sheltered. Because you know what I found? If I think about myself honestly, you know what I find? I find I got a lot of refuges. I find I have a lot of shelters. I find I have a lot of shields and bucklers. Now the shields and bucklers that I have typically are made out of aluminum foil. They don't do much. They don't stop anything. And rather than having pinions and wings over me, too often I have paper, something that I've created out of my own hands or out of my own mind. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it? I hope it does. Hope so, because it must. Our only hope is that that, use the term rebuke. That rebuke must be there in this text. It has to be, because if it's not, we'll never get the far perspective. See, too often we look at the text and we say, wow, isn't the Lord good? And the answer is, absolutely and amen. 
too often we look at the text and, and, and we'll say, isn't the Lord amazing and how He cares for us and how He, he, he watches over us 24-7 He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And isn't that true? Yes. And isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't it mind-blowing? Absolutely it is. And it ought to cause us to really, really rejoice. But we miss the point that we're part of the thousand or the ten thousand. So what do we do with that? Sounds kind of hopeless, doesn't it? Ah, but it's not. Because you see, what we need to do is we need to go back to the text once again. We absolutely must go back to verse 1 again and work our way through. So let's go. Here we go. Verse 1. He who dwell, I'm hopeful that in going through the text several times, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of get it and remember it. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I don't know about you. Actually, I do. But that's not me. And that's not you. not but ready some more encouragement you know what that was Jesus that was Jesus and remains Jesus because it can be said of Jesus and only Jesus that he always dwelt in the shelter and dwells in the shelter of the most high Yahweh God the Father He abides in the shelter of the Almighty. He says to Yahweh, God the Father, my refuge, my fortress, my God whom I trust. He always has. Always. Always. And so as a result of that, verse 3 through 7, right? Verse 3 through 7 perfectly fits Jesus in every way. In every way, in every step of his life. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Did they come after him? Remember they came after him one time to stone him, and what did he do? What, what did he do? He just walked right through them. Walked right through their midst. They were after him over and over. They were continuously looking for ways to kill him. And what happened? He was safe. I'm just going to read the rest of it. He will cover you with his pinion, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks at darkness in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noontime. I was thinking about this text, verses 3 through 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. I was struck by this. This is one little thing. The night, the night stuff, there's several passages there about nighttime. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The soldiers came after him, didn't they? The disciples feared, didn't they? And, yeah, rightfully so, I guess, some level, at a human level. Jesus walked in their midst and said what? Who are you looking for? J 
Jesus of Nazareth, right here. Right here. They fell over like dead men, right? Opportunity to get away, isn't it? And Jesus stood there waiting for them to come back through, back together again, get themselves together. He just stood there and waited. <laughs> they got themselves back together again. He said, I told you, I'm right here. And they arrested him and hauled him off. He had nothing to fear, did he? He had nothing to fear. It's incredible. Why? Verse 9. Because he had made the Lord, Yahweh, his dwelling place, the Most High, who was his refuge. He alone is the only one who ever was this. Ever, says verse 1 and 9. No evil shall, as a result, be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And that's exactly what happened all throughout his life. On your hands they will, I'm sorry, then he talks about the angels. And obviously you have to pick up that the devil quotes the passage. Why? Why does the devil choose this passage to talk about when he could have chosen anything, anywhere, is because the passage is talking about, the chapter is talking about Jesus. Because ultimately, it's not talking about you and me. The whole entire song is talking about Jesus. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, he, the devil obviously misapplied the text to being thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, which wasn't the point. The point was evil. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion, the adder. Now, the adder especially kind of rings, shouldn't it? Remember the fall? Genesis chapter 3? Could very well have been an adder. It was described as a snake. You will tread on the lion, the adder, the young lion, the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And God the Father always did, didn't he? Except for one time. If your mind's working all right now, you should be saying, but wait, Steve, stop. What about that one time? You said he'll be protected every step of the way, and he was, except for the one time. Well, what time was that? The time when he was judged and convicted, and he was hauled up to Golgotha, and he was laid out on the tree, and they took those spikes, and they drove him through his wrists and his feet, and they hung him up on the tree, and something happened. That fateful Friday. Because you see, that fateful Friday, what happened? Jesus wasn't protected. He wasn't honored. He found no shelter. He found no refuge. Quite to the contrary, the New Testament records that the Father, what? Turned his face 
but wait, I thought you said Steve the pastor was talking about Jesus. Yes, it is. And the promises are for Jesus. But in that moment, none of those promises were true. Why? Because for all intents and purposes, at that moment, the Scriptures record that he took on the sin of the world. You know what that means? In effect, it was as if he was not looking to the Father for shelter and refuge. At that moment, when the Father looked at him, rather than seeing the one who was seeking refuge, he did not see the, his son as someone who was of sin. He saw someone with the sin of the world. I can't comprehend how much sin that is. And no longer was he seen by the Father as someone seeking refuge. He was thoroughly inundated. Thoroughly diffused with sin in every way. Every type of sin of every person. He had every one of them. All the sin was on him. And at that moment, the father turned his face away. And the picture is one of his face of blessing is turned, the face of curse is upon him. Deuteronomy. He's doomed. No longer is he sheltered. He became one of the thousands and ten thousands, verse 7. He became sin for you and me. And all he could receive is wrath. But what was the result? The result was that God the Son died. And as he died, he said, what? What is his last words? It is finished. What's finished? Sin is atoned for. Wrath satisfied. The scriptures record that the Father's wrath was satisfied. And as a result, once again, the face of blessing was on the Son. He no longer was viewed as having the sin of the world because it's atoned for, it's paid for. Removed as far as the east is from the west. And so once again, what, is the, what does Jesus find? Shelter. Refuge. He had to be removed from the shelter and the refuge in order for sin to be atoned for. But as a result of that, the promises come back into play, don't they? What are the promises? Verse 14 and following, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him. What does Philippians chapter 2 say as a result of him being crucified? Look at it, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 9. Verse 8 talks about his death. Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has what? 
God is what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Highly exalted. Going back to Psalm 91. <coughs> Verse 15 again. When he calls to me, I will answer him. When he, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and what? Honor him. Highly exalt him. And give him a name that's above every name. With long life, I will satisfy him. Yeah, I think eternal life is, all, is long, isn't it? And I will show him my salvation. You see, the long, the long view, the long interpretation of this text is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But here, now we go back to the near interpretation again. So we'll be brief here, and then we'll be over it. You see, ultimately, this passage is talking about Jesus, not you. Even when we get back, we looked at near interpretation and realized we don't measure up. We look at the far interpretation, and it's Jesus. We go back to the near interpretation. Now, we must not fall into the trap of saying, therefore, because I'm a believer, ready? Therefore, because I'm a believer, because I've received Christ as my Savior, because He's made me alive and given me, by His grace, the faith to believe, and He has redeemed me, He has saved me, therefore now I am one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, and, there, and I abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I am one who now says, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I am not one who says, I must not see myself as saying, as a result of Christ, now the Lord is my dwelling place, the Lord most high who is my refuge. That's not the point. You see, the near interpretation is not because the far interpretation is Christ. Now I am the near interpretation. Woohoo! And I am this because we're not. We already established that. Even if we are believers, we're not. Verse 1 and 9, are we? Right? We are not. I'm not. You're not. We know we're not. If, by the way, can I just say this? If we were, we wouldn't need His grace today. We wouldn't need Him to be merciful to us today. The point of the text is this, and this should be so encouraging and should bring us to Psalm 96. It is this. I'm not that. Even this side of redemption, I'm not that. But in spite of the fact and the reality that I'm not that, he gives me his righteousness. And so the Father sees me through the Son. When he looks at me, he doesn't see me. Because if he saw me, all my righteousness is what? It's filthy rags. If he looks on me, all he sees is what? A guy who still is full of sin. A guy who still fails all the time. A guy who still has a boatload of other refuges that I turn to all the time. I do. But when he looks on me, he sees Jesus. 
He sees the refuge. He sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. And it's because he sees Christ that if I may use this theological term, it's all the rest is imputed to me. You see, the righteousness was imputed to me, that it was given to me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It was given to me. And because the righteousness of Christ was given to me, all the rest of this is given to me as well. Because it comes along with the gift of his righteousness. It's because Christ dwells in the Father that I find myself dwelling in the Father. It's because Christ is under his wing that I find myself under his wing. It's because of Christ that all of this comes into play. It's because of Christ that I don't have to wake up tomorrow and worry that pestilence will befall me and it won't be good. It's because of Christ that I don't have to sit around wondering if tomorrow life will be a nightmare or not. Because it won't be. You know why? Because what man or what the evil one means for evil, God means for good. And he's going to use it to transform me into his image. I can approach tomorrow. I can approach this afternoon. I can approach tonight. I can approach everything from that perspective because the reality is I'm in Christ because I've been grafted into the vine because my life is now hidden with Christ and God. That's what I have. I don't deserve any of it. I deserve none of it. It's pure mercy and grace. And so I can look at my life not from a pestilence perspective, not from an evil perspective, not from arrows, as it were, flying. Not from terrors by night perspective. Pestilence and destruction. But instead, I look at it from the perspective that God is for us. What? Who can be against us? If I'm in Christ then someone has to be more powerful than Christ to do something that's against what Christ has for a goal for me. And they may very well mean it for evil, but God means it for good. He's first cause because I'm in him. He's the whole point of the text. It's Christ. Which again should bring us to Psalm 96. So I'm going to close just by flipping back over to that. Psalm 96 is all about an appropriate response to that reality of Psalm 91. The appropriate and only response to Psalm 91 is, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. If we dwell on those realities of Psalm 91, here's what we're going to find. We're going to sing a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. How could I but tell of his salvation when I think of Psalm 91? Right? My salvation is in spite of me. It's not because of me. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. How could I but do that? 
when I realized Psalm 91? For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That's all the other shelters, by the way, all the other refuges. They're all worthless idols. But the Lord has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world was established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. I told you the text is both encouraging, comforting, exhorting, and confrontive. But primarily encouraging if we're believers. Primarily comforting because we're believers, if we are. But let us not miss the point that it is about Jesus. And when we understand that the passage is about Jesus and we receive the benefits because we are grafted in, because we've been given his righteousness, then we are blessed. Again, our wildest imaginations. I can guarantee you this, when we start getting that, we will be people who sing to the Lord a new song. who bless his name and tell of his salvation. Who ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And on and on and on. What an amazing God. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing Redeemer. Amen? Let's worship him, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. <coughs> we are people who recognize that we not only did not bring anything to the table, we still bring nothing to the table but what you give us. Help us that we will recognize who you are and what you've done, that you will draw our hearts to that reality and it will bring us to rejoice and praise and ascribe to you, your great name. Because we are needy, desperate, by ourselves, hopeless people. As we saw in our Sunday school hour this morning, worthless people. And yet you pursued this worthless man and these worthless men and women for your glory and praise. Thank you. In your name I pray. Amen.